If you will, please stand with me as we read God's word for us this morning. Acts chapter 17 will be in verses 1 through 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, goodness, I'm in some trouble right out the gate. Uh, I have read this before. (laughs) They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men whom, who have... T- Turn the whole world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of Christ for us this morning. You may be seated. I do invite you to keep those Bibles open because what I'm going to do is just walk through this passage and I want you to see whether these things that I'm saying are so. In the last stop of Paul on his second missionary journey, he was in Philippi in chapter 16. Paul and Silas were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. The city authorities there didn't like what they were preaching about how there was another king called Jesus. And Lydia, if you remember, and the jailer were saved in that 
missionary stop. And then in chapter 16, verse 39, right before our passage, the authorities have to come to Paul and they sheepishly apologize for all the trouble they put Paul through because he was clearly innocent. And yet Paul left Philippi because he didn't want any more trouble for the church there. And he wanted to preach the gospel in the rest of Macedonia. And so chapter 17 picks up with Paul's missions team, now a hundred miles southwest of Philippi in the city of Thessalonica. And he's there until he has to leave in verse 10 for another city for the same reason. Our passage tells us that it was Paul's custom It was his habit to preach the same old sermon to the same old Jews. And that sermon, we're told, in verses 2 and 3, Paul stands up and says, God is the one who said, if you want to see my king crowned, you will find someone who even through his suffering saw to the other side who through his suffering on the cross, there was another side where he would be raised from the dead to save sinners. That's Paul's sermon. And yet scriptures point, or you could say Luke, who writes the book of Acts to a man named Theophilus, a new Christian. His point here is that Theophilus, and my point to you from this passage is that we should conform all of our life to the Christ that God has revealed. Paul is an example here. He, he is, he has this new life. Now he has a life that is conformed to preaching the one who saved him and to enduring the suffering that he suffers every single time he preaches. To those in Berea, their whole life changes when they hear that Jesus is the Christ that God has revealed. And they want to search everything from that moment on to see if this was so. I know that there are all kinds of things that we're facing in our life right now. Maybe it's been a great week. Surely there are things that we can be thankful for that God has brought into our life. There are probably also things that we're really struggling with, real concerns that matter. But if you read your Bible, you will learn this truth. All that matters is that Christ the King come. Whether or not... Christ has come, makes all the difference to everyone who actually is listening when the Bible is open. So, beloved, conform all your life to the Christ that God has revealed. Point number one is in verses one through nine where Paul is persuading in Thessalonica. He's persuading 
with the Bible. Point number one, Paul is persuading with the Bible. Verses one through four, he's preaching the Christ. Every Sabbath, that's every single Saturday, it was his custom. In verse two, it says to preach the very same sermon. And that sermon at the end of verse three is this, that Jesus, the one I'm telling you about, is the Christ. Well, if this is the greatest preacher's one sermon, well, it would it would be good for you and it would be good for me to understand what he's talking about when his simple sermon is Jesus is the Christ. What is the Christ? We live in a, in a place where the word Jesus and the word Christ are so very familiar, we can even lose focus on him and not even know what we're talking about here. I'm not talking about his last name. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his title. He is the king. And so in verse 7, when the people who don't like this message start telling on Paul, he says, what Paul's doing is doing, and he's telling the truth here. The Jews are telling the truth when they say, what Paul's doing is he's disrupting what Caesar has said we must not do, which is to say there is another king. This is what Paul is saying. Jesus is the king, not that the Romans, not that the other smaller countries have crowned, but God himself has anointed. He is the Messiah. He is the savior that God has brought to protect his people and punish his enemies. You need to know, first of all, what is the Christ? He is the savior king. God long promised to protect his people and to punish his enemies, everyone else. Paul's sermon is not Jesus is a Christ. Yes, Saul in 1 Samuel was a Christ and David in 1 Samuel was a Christ anointed Messiah. Paul's sermon in verse 3 is Jesus is the Christ. He is the last king of God's people. And that's why he just keeps on preaching that same sermon. And listen to me, friends. Whether you are someone who came in here today and said, I know God. Or you are someone who came in here today and you say, I don't know if I know him. If you are going to be protected by God, Or, if you're, on the other hand, going to be punished by God. All of it depends on whether you don't just know a few facts about Jesus, but whether you love Jesus, whether you honor Jesus, whether you live for Jesus because he's God's last king. What the Jews heard that day is there is another king, but to put Paul's sermon more precisely, it is, there will be no other king. Notice what Paul is doing here. Three Saturdays, one sermon. But really, what I want you to see in verses 2 and 3 is four things that Paul is doing to persuade. 
Luke, when he's writing to Theophilus, he wants him to understand not just that he preached that Jesus was the Christ, but that he did four things. Number one, he reasoned with his kinsmen according to the flesh who came to synagogue that day. He was reasoning with them from the scriptures. It's a word that means dialogue. It was, it was a, a give and take, a back and forth using the Bible. They were not there that day saying, what do you think? They were not there that day relying on some external source. They weren't there basing their life on what does the news say or what are the best doctors saying today. They're there with Bibles open. God's word is the standard each group is using and they're just trying to understand together. What is God saying? And then when we find that, we better put our life in line with that. He's reasoning with them with the scriptures. Secondly, he's explaining to them. This is a this is a saying that literally means a male who first opens the wombs. Think about a, a mother who has a child for the first time. Something is happening in that moment that has never happened before. And he is explaining in the sense that he's disclosing to their minds something in the scriptures they've been reading all their lives that they had never seen before. That Jesus, who they have heard about, they're in the synagogues with all the Jews. They've heard of Jesus. They heard how the Jews do not, re- they do not accept him as God's king. They know how they even killed him for claiming to be God's king. And, P- and Paul is there that day to say to them for the first time, they're all lying. And he's not dead anymore. Number three, he's proving to them. That, that, that's a word that, that is used to set food before your honored guests at dinner. He's putting before them. He's saying, taste and see that Jesus is the all-satisfying and strong and conquering king that we've all been waiting for. But fourth, he's proclaiming. That means he's declaring. In other words, at this point in the sermon, he is saying, I've, I've put him before you. I've, I've tried to disclose to you things you have not understood before. I've said taste and seize precious to me. But now I'm telling you he is the Christ. Whether you like it or not, whether you recognize it or not, he is God's king and they don't all like it. Some of them, it says in verse four, are persuaded. But then in verse five, it says the Jews are jealous. And then in verses eight and nine, whenever, whenever this message comes to the city officials of this great city of Thessalonica, they're disturbed by it. But it is no less true. What I want you to notice in the four things Jesus is doing when he's trying to persuade them with the Bible is this is not a Christian who is just satisfied with getting the message out. He's not like like the height of his goal for evangelism is not, did I, did I just say it? No, he's reasoning, explaining, proving, proclaiming. He wants them to be persuaded. 
So, beloved, I just want to hold this out to us all. That if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, then we will not just be concerned with telling people, and we won't do less than that, but we'll do more than that. We will labor like Paul is laboring, that they might know he's the Christ. We will pray and beg every chance we get that God would make them know, make known to them that he is the Christ. Paul had to do this. Paul had to explain, to prove, to reason with them, because though they were looking for the Christ, they were looking for a different kind of Christ. Though they were waiting, according to the Scriptures, every Saturday, hearing about the King who had come, they were looking for the wrong kind of King. He persuades them with the Bible. Notice what he says in verses 2 and 3. It was necessary. It was essential. The very thing you think disqualifies Jesus, don't you see this is the very thing that He must do? He must suffer. If you're looking for a king who doesn't die, you're going to miss him. Because he had to suffer and then be raised from the dead. They missed that Jesus, they missed Jesus. Because they were looking for a candidate to fill a job post and they didn't understand the requirements for the position. And so Paul says, no, first of all, the first qualification is you've you got to suffer and die. Well, okay, Paul, there's lots of people who have done that. Well, the second qualification is you can't stay dead. Well, well, there is only one in history who that applies to. God said so. You see how he's doing all of this with the Bible? He wants them to understand. This isn't my opinion. Forget about the Jews. Forget about me. Look in your scriptures. Did you not hear when Isaiah said, the king who comes to save was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. Did you not hear, remember in Isaiah, that he will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. That, that his own people will, will reject him. That he will even be smitten by God. That is, struck by God. He will be afflicted. Did, but did you understand why he would be? He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. That God in that moment would be putting upon Jesus on the cross the punishment we deserve. And that would bring us peace. How is it? Do you think that our king can bring peace to his people and punishment to his enemies? Don't you understand? You are an enemy of God. Your sins have earned your judgment against him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the sin and iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was judged. He made a grave with the wicked. He was killed like he was wicked. And this was the will of the Lord. 
it was necessary the Lord for the Lord to crush him and make his soul an offering for our guilt so that he would have people who see the glory of God. He had to suffer. But it wasn't just enough necessary that he would suffer and die. Don't you see, if you turn to Psalm 16, don't you remember what David said? My heart is glad. My flesh dwells secure because you, God, will not leave my soul in shale, in the grave. Well, David is still buried. So, beloved, don't you understand that this can't just be about David, but the king would have to be killed and he would have to be raised. And this Jesus was killed and he's alive again. God said so. And God always said so. God always said so. I hope you'll stay with me because I'm about to belabor a point. I am about to overwhelm you. With this point, not only did God say the king he sends would have to be killed and would have to not stay dead. But he always said that. I mean, the very first sermon God preached when he had a church, when he had more than one person to listen to him, it was in Genesis chapter 3. And when he addressed that congregation that day, sin had come into the world, and he stands up and he says to that first congregation his first words. You have You are dead in your sins. And you cannot conquer Satan. You cannot be saved from your sins. You cannot be delivered from death. But there is a son who will come, who will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. He will be bruised on his heel, but he's going to crush his head. He will be hurt and then he'll be saved. That's the first sermon. Did you know after Jesus was raised from the dead, he got a congregation together on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And right after he's raised from the dead, he preaches a sermon and it's the same sermon. He looks to these two guys and he says, you fools. You're so slow to believe all that the prophets ever said that it was necessary for God's king to suffer and then enter his glory, be raised from the dead. And did you know, not only was it after Jesus was first raised to the dead, but right when he ascended into heaven and he sent the spirit down to fill the preacher. And then in Acts chapter two, when Peter has a congregation there, what do you think his sermon was? Well, let me tell you from Acts chapter two, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth delivered up According to the plan of God, you killed him and God raised him up. God raised him up. And therefore, you should know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the one you killed. Well, it's it was the first sermon ever. It was the first sermon after the resurrection. It was the first sermon after the ascension. It is every sermon Paul preached. Don't you know what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? I determined, church in Corinth, to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And then to close out that letter, he said to them, 
I remind you of the gospel I preach. And what is the gospel you preach, Paul? That Christ died for our sins to fulfill the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised to fulfill everything God has said. And I could go back to Luke chapter 24 and show you that every word that every apostle was to reveal was also to reveal that the Christ had to suffer and be raised. Whenever Kelly and I went to a concert a few years ago, uh, we went to see Josh Garrels, one of our favorite um, musicians. We love all of his songs. And we were saying to one another, ooh, I hope he plays Heaven's Knife. And we left before the encore when he played Heaven's Knife and heard it from a friend later. If you were lucky enough to be in one of the synagogues when the great apostle Paul preached. Oh, I love his Galatians. Oh, I love me some Ephesians. I wonder what he's going to say to me today. Well, you would hear the same thing every single time. God has a key. He has already suffered. And he is raised. This is not just what Paul preaches every time he gets behind the pulpit. Every time God has handed the mic. This is his sermon. What do you think that means for you? What do you think that means for me? If you are someone who has not devoted your entire life to the Lord Jesus, you must do that right now. God has already put him on the throne. And what happens if you do is what happened to this church, Thessalonica, what we just heard. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You've got to turn away from every other claim on your heart. If anything holds your heart, If you love your father more than him, you're not worthy of him. If if anything can tell you something to do and Jesus tells you something to do, if you say yes to anyone else, that's not salvation. And whenever we sin, what is salvation is knowing that this, this king died for us and he will forgive us if we come back to him. But you must turn from idols to the living and true God. And it's not easy. Jason, they they went out looking for Paul and Silas. Can we get them in here? They can't find Paul and Silas, but they found Jason. One of the believers there. And Jason had to fork over money to get out of prison. Because of Paul's sermon. Christianity will not give you an easy life. But Christ will give you eternal life. And life after the grave. Verse 4, some were persuaded, noticed, and joined Paul and Silas. I just want to make this point as a pastor to a church. You see the language? Some were persuaded, and what did they do? They joined Paul and Silas. 
I could go to lots of places, but I'm here in Acts 17. God never calls anyone to Jesus in isolation. The Jews were joined together. That's what synagogue means. So God never calls anyone to isolation. They gathered together in the synagogue. But when some of them were persuaded by the sermon that Paul was preaching, they left the synagogue and joined the church that they knew, Paul and Silas. The moment someone is united to Christ. Well, you can put it this way. He ain't lonely and they ain't lonely. They are surrounded by other Christians. They unite to other believers. That's also proven in the fact that when Paul leaves there for Berea, he gets a message back to them by writing a letter to a local church. Be joined to a local church. If you're a believer in Christ, be joined to a local church. And while you're at it, don't look for a children's ministry. Those are bonuses. Don't look for a style of music. You look for a people who are devoted to hearing and following the sermon of verse 3. Jesus is the Christ. Not my preferences. Not someone who will guarantee that my child will walk the aisle and can get him to do so real early. Jesus is the king. The Jews are jealous, verse 5. They are losing members of their synagogue because of preaching. Uh, Do you notice just the bad guys and what they claim in verse 7, how these men are turning the world upside down? Do you also notice how Luke is very clear in what Paul was doing? He gave us those four things that Paul was doing, and then he gives us these other things that they are doing when they're jealous and claiming that these are the guys who are causing a stink. Look in verse 5. They were taking men of the rabble. They were the ones who were forming a mob. They were making the city in an uproar. They're the one attacking the people. They're liars. Verse 8, the city council, Thessalonica is disturbed. So afraid of Caesar. They got to get the preacher out. So Rome doesn't get angry. So verse 9, they... They have Jason pay them off so that they can, he can get out of prison. And it's just this kind of understanding. You're not going to cause these problems again, will you? This is security you're paying. And so Paul leaves. Surely to let this church keep thriving without his presence. But this is true of Paul. This is true of them. They will conform all their life to the Christ that God has revealed. And now, point number two. Luke stops focusing on Paul. Point number two, verses 10 through 15. He focuses on a different group of Jews who are examining the Bible in Berea. You see this in verse 11, what, what he's doing. He, he's now holding out to Theophilus. These are the good kind of Jews, he's saying. These 
Jews in Berea, verse 11, are different from the majority of the Jews we saw in Thessalonica. The majority were in verse 5. Some of the Jews in Thessalonica came to Christ, but these Jews were noble in Berea because the majority of them were very different. So he holds out Paul for persuading with the Bible, and then secondly, he holds out the Jews for examining the Bible. When Paul opens the Bible to them, they do something different than the Jews in Thessalonica. They open their Bibles. Not only are we reminded what we should want when we worship, when we gather together as a church, what should we want? We should want Christ to be preached. But then the second section tells us what we should do when we worship, like you. You want me to preach Christ. You don't want me to preach you. You don't want me to help you have a better life for a little while. You want me to preach Christ. But you should do something too. One reason that we do not put the words of Scripture um, typically on the screen is we want you to have open Bibles. And there's reasons for it. We want a church of Bereans. Don't just come to church. There were lots in the synagogue. Luke doesn't hold them out. Don't just come to a church that preaches Christ. Do that. Don't, don't not do that. But you don't want verse 13 to happen to you. That when Christ is preached, you respond like the unbelievers who have their Bibles. And they're agitating and they're stirring up the crowds and they hate the sermon. You want verse 12. Many of them, these Jews who did verse 11, many of them, therefore, because they were doing verse 11, they're the ones who believe. They're the ones who are saved. And so, Paul had four things he was doing to persuade. The Bereans do four things with the Scriptures as well. God gives them the term noble. You know what that means? That means of royal birth. It's as if he's saying, if you want to know who are those who are born to the King, look at how they listen. Four ways to listen and be like a Berean in verse 11. You could put it this way. These are four signs for born-again believers. To use an old phrase, born-again believers. First of all, listen to the Bible preached with all eagerness. Verse 11. With all eagerness, with goodwill, with an absence of prejudice against the pure preaching of the gospel. How many of you are eager for spring to come? I'm not one of them. My wife is. We had this conversation the other day. I'd like a little more cold before we go to hot. Some of y'all are really eager for summer and not spring because lake water ain't warm enough yet. 
Some of you, if you heard your favorite band was coming to town, like me, you would be eager. No one has to drag anyone to anything they're eager for. Believers do not have to be dragged to hear the word. We are eager. So much so that Sundays affect Saturday nights. Saturday nights we're wanting good rest because it may mess up my Sunday morning. We are prayerful on Sunday morning. We're aware that, that the devil wants to keep us from coming. The devil wants us to miss everything. He wants us to be distracted. He wants us to distract others. We're prayerful and we're ready when we're, when we arrive, not just to see people, but to hear Christ preached. They listen to preaching with all Eagerness. And this is what Paul ends up saying, not just about the Bereans, but also about the Thessalonians. You heard it earlier. We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. How do we know? How do we know someone has been chosen by God? They've been loved by God and and saved by God. How do we know? He tells us, because you received the word in much affliction. Even though it was really hard to receive it. You received it and you had joy in the Holy Spirit because you received it. Beloved, eagerness, according to Dr. Luke, is a sign of salvation. Many of them, therefore, believe. And I want to say, as I go through these four words, these four descriptions of what they did with the word, I pray, I've prayed for a long time that Redeemer Church would be a church of Bereans. I believe by God's grace, he has made us a church of Bereans. I believe these things are true of us as a church. This is why we're concerned. Eagerness is a sign of salvation and avoidance signals something else. And excuses signal something else. This is why we want to be safe And as soon as possible, we want to all be gathered together. And this is why we are concerned. You should be concerned. If we've covenanted with people that this is not seeming true of. Church is the thing that Christians skip other things for. They listen with all eagerness, but they say these people who were saved, they, they, secondly, they examine the scriptures, you know, the phrase, better ingredients, better pizza. Now, you don't know Papa John's. We're in a city where I know Papa John's. Maybe you've heard the commercial, better ingredients, better pizza. If you have better ingredients, you find better pizza. If you're a baker, you want to search and find and sift out all the best ingredients, knowing it'll make a difference. And that's what the word examine means. It is the word for an attorney who says, I've got to see all the evidence because I've got to know the truth. It is the word that describes what Pilate did as he was examining Jesus and then said, there is nothing he's done wrong. And it is what the Bereans are doing when they hear Paul say, Jesus is the Christ. We examine the Scriptures. Third, Bereans cannot wait for next Sunday. 
I mean, they do not wait for next Sunday. You heard Paul in Thessalonica. He kept coming three Sabbath days in a row. Well, what does it say about the Bereans? They wouldn't wait a week. They needed to see this daily. They're not just eager. They are urgent. They're not saying, well, interesting. I'll hear more about this next week. Paul, we got to talk tomorrow and the next day. And fourth, the Bereans are focused on the Christ. The Bereans ain't going to no church that has a sermon series, a series that says how to live the abundant life for you. They ain't going to that church. Bereans ain't going to no church about how to find more in 2021. They ain't going. It says they were examining daily if these things were so. If Jesus is the Christ indeed, that's what they got to know. If God has revealed the king we've been waiting for, what I want doesn't matter. What I experience doesn't matter. What makes me happy will not drive me. What I think, what my former preachers think does not matter anymore. If God has revealed his king, all that matters is him. In other words, if you want to spot a Christian, you look for an open Bible. And you also look for a life that is conformed to the king revealed in that Bible. We are most eager to hear about Jesus. And therefore, as a church, we must focus on the words of Scripture. Because it is in the words of Scripture that we don't just hear about our king. We hear the very voice of our king. And that's what we want to hear. Look, I, I'll tell you, I, I don't, I, I don't want to, I think we're making too many things about politics. Too many things. There's politics in here. That's all I'll talk about. Right? There's politics in Thessalonica. They got the politicians together and made a political argument. He's talking about that there's another king. And that's what, that's what offended them. I was disappointed in November when I realized, I don't know if it was November or December or January when they finally said that there is another president. It was a weird year. I, I will admit to you, I'm not a Trump fan. You may be. I, I'm talking more about really not being a President Biden fan. I mean, there were some even this week who were thinking there was, you heard about this, there's going to be a second inauguration of the original day of the inauguration was supposed to be in March, and so they were hoping that Trump would, be, would finally come forward. The Thessalonians, the unbelieving Thessalonians, were disturbed at the thought that there was another king. And beloved, if we're not careful, we will be so distracted by the things in our life. And we will be so disturbed by this reality we're facing that there is another president. I'm not happy about some of the things going on with the Equality Act, with stuff in women's bathrooms, with stuff in women's sports, with what's going on with the energy sector or the economy. With, they're even after Dr. Seuss now. Let me tell you a story. One day, James the sixth, King James the sixth of Scotland, 
went to a church, Robert Bruce's church. And he did, he did the same thing that day that he does every sermon. James starts talking to the people he came with right when the preacher starts preaching. And Pastor Bruce decided, I'm going to teach the king a lesson. So he stopped preaching. And then the king stopped talking. And then when he started preaching again, the king started talking again. And then whenever the preacher would pause, the king would pause. And then whenever the preacher would start talking again, so did the king. And then the man of God turned to the, enti- to the king and he said in front of the whole congregation, a wise king once said, when the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. And the lion of the tribe of Judah is roaring when his gospel is being preached. And it would be wise for all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. You and I can forget. Once God has put His king on the throne, there is no other king. And part of conforming our whole life to Christ includes not getting so disturbed or distracted. Not devoting too high a percentage of our life, our afternoons, our words, the majority of our prayers on the petty kings and the petty kingdoms of this passing earth. Beloved, we're not waiting for 2024. We are waiting for the Son of God to be revealed from heaven who will deliver us from the wrath. Whatever happens to our country, which I care about, whatever our president does, which I care about, it does not matter that much to those who know Christ. History exists to put one man on one throne. So let me just put it as simply as I possibly can. The only thing that matters in your life is knowing the Savior that God promised, that God already sent, that God already raised. Father in heaven, we pray that you would cause us to devote ourselves to King Jesus, that we would, like we see in Paul and like we see in the Bereans, conform all of our life, all the things that go wrong in our life, all the things that go wrong or right in our country, all of it to the fact that there is no other king but the Lord Jesus. And we are so glad that he is our king. You have loved us so well by not sparing your only son. And you have loved us so well by giving us a king who loves us with such steadfast love. We pray all this in his name. Amen.